You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. special episode of the Book of Nature podcast, where we wouldn't even hurt a fly. The Book of Nature podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and today's episode is our contribution to the Christian Humanist 2018 crossover event, with all of the podcasts representing episodes with a common theme. This year's crossover theme is the films of Alfred Hitchcock, and being a psychologist, I threw my hand right up in the air and yelled, I call psycho! So today, we're talking about the Hitchcock film that most people mention when they talk about Hitchcock films. The film that made you afraid to take a shower. Joining me today are Victoria Farmer and Sarah Kluster. Victoria comes to us from Minnetonka, Minnesota, and works in audience development at Public Radio International. Uh, how are things going, uh, Victoria? Pretty well. Uh, had a, a bit of a difficult week, um, a lot of ups and downs at work, so I'm happy to uh, be here and talk about the psychology of murder with you wonderful people. All right. Uh, Sarah Kluster comes to us from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, Sarah, how's life where the West begins? Very nice. The weather here has been transitioning from that 97 degrees every day into sort of fall-ish, so that's been nice, but there is also a major football game today at, at Texas Christian, or TCU as they like to call it. They say that the, the C in TCU is silent here in Fort Worth, um, because there is a major, major football game, and so it's just traffic everywhere. Okay. Yeah, we're having a... Uh... Uh, warming spell up here in uh, in Canada with mixed reactions to the warming spell warming spells are nice but on the other hand uh, went and put the snow tires on the minivan after about a week of getting dumped on with snow and now I'm riding around on dry pavement in sunshine in winter tires fun okay uh <laughs> So, uh, listeners, I am Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the middle of nowhere, on the side of a lonely highway. Uh, hang on. I, sorry, this time it seems I'm actually describing where Karenport, Saskatchewan is really located, instead of a joke version. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, to kick things off, I'm going to begin by warning listeners that in this episode we will be making absolutely no effort whatsoever to avoid spoilers. Spoilers! Spoilers everywhere! If you haven't seen Psycho, you might think that you know what it's about through cultural osmosis. But this is a film loaded with false leads, reveals, and wrenching tonal shifts to such a degree that Hitchcock instituted a no-late-admissions policy to force theatergoers to watch the whole thing from beginning to end. So all of that to say, uh, if you haven't seen Psycho yet, turn the episode off and go watch the film. Then come back, give us a listen. So go do that. Do that now. Uh, if you continue to listen after this point, 
ye be warned. Now then, let's get into this film. So I'll start off with a brief summary. Psycho starts itself off looking less like a horror film that uh, it's sometimes referred to as, and more like a crime noir. We meet Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, who has just finished a lunchtime hotel visit, if you know what I mean, with her boyfriend Sam. The two talk about getting married, but Sam protests that he can't afford to provide for them as a married couple, as he is up to his eyeballs in debt and bled dry by alimony payments. Motivated by love, Marion steals $40,000 from her employer, and we get an extended and very tense sequence in which she is trying to get out of town with the cash without being noticed, all the while tormented by guilt and by anxiety over the possibility of capture. Tired and a bit lost, on a dark and stormy night, see what I did there? Uh, she pulls into a motel to get some sleep and continue in the morning. There she meets Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. Shy, awkward, but friendly young man who runs the motel and lives alone with his mother in the adjacent house. Norman invites Marion to share dinner with him. Marion overhears Norman's mother angrily shouting at him. Uh, the two have a conversation in which Norman reveals to Marion that his mother tends to go a little mad sometimes. The conversation gets awkward, and Norman's starting to seem a little bit on the creepy side, and Marion excuses herself to go to her room for the night. At that point, we find out that Norman is in fact more than a little creepy, as we see him spying on her as she undresses. Way to go, Norman. Uh, Marion has decided to head back in the morning and return the money. And then we get... But of um, the shower scene. As Marion showers, a shadowy figure approaches, and Marion is knifed to death in one of the most iconic murder scenes of all time. Norman is astonished and horrified, yelling out, Oh, God, Mother, blood, blood! And he runs to the hotel room and cleans up Mother's crime scene. Marion's body and possessions, including the stolen money that Norman never even knew was there, end up at the bottom of a swamp. After this abrupt shift from crime noir to slasher horror film, the movie takes another turn and begins to resemble more like a mystery movie, as Marion's sister Lila and Sam, Marion's boyfriend, try to find out where Marion disappeared to, along with Arbogast, a private investigator who just wants the money recovered. The trail leads back to the Bates Motel. Arbogates investigates the hotel, only to be murdered by Mama. Then, Lila and Sam find out from the local sheriff that Mrs. Bates has actually been dead for ten years. So who's the little old lady who yells at Norman and murderizes people? Sam and Lila return to the motel and discover the mummified corpse of Mrs. Bates and a screaming Norman wearing a dress and a wig. Norman is captured and taken into custody. The film ends with a long exposition scene in which a psychiatrist explains that Norman had murdered his mother and her lover ten years ago and now has a split personality. The mother personality is the one who did all the killing, insanely jealous whenever Norman felt attraction toward a woman. In the penultimate shot in the movie, we see that the mother personality is entirely taken over, and Norman sits thinking to himself in mother's voice about how they'd never suspect such a sweet little old lady like her of such monstrous deeds. Of course, one of the fun things about discussing Hitchcock films is that the drama behind the camera sometimes rivals the drama, drama on screen. Now, as far as I know, nobody got knifed to death on set, uh, but uh, Victoria, is there anything you can tell us about the production or release of this film? Sure. 
so I watched a really well done documentary uh, done by the Turner Classic Movies channel released in 1997, uh, really um, simply titled The Making of Psycho. So that's where a lot of this information comes from. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in it. First, the idea from the movie comes from really a kind of unexciting place. Uh, after Hitchcock makes North by Northwest, he is looking for his next movie. And on the way back to England from America in the airport, he buys uh, the book Psycho and decides uh, that this is going to be his next film. So kind of an inauspicious um, beginning. There are a lot of ways in which the film differs from the book, um, probably the most important being that Norman Bates in the book is not as sympathetic. He's kind of ugly and fat and balding, um, doesn't look at all like Tony Perkins, but they make the decision to cast Perkins um, because he's handsome and disarming. Um, Hitchcock decides to get a lot of people from Alfred Hitchcock Presents to work on this film. He asks one of his writers to write a version of the script, uh, which he hates and throws out. That guy gets fired, and he hires Joseph Stefano, um, who decides to fix the issue that this sort of big reveal that we don't know that Norma Bates is dead by doing this giant bait-and-switch that Charles, you alluded to earlier, um, centering the story on Marion, starting with Janet Lee um, and fooling the audience that way. Um, and Hitchcock famously tells Alma, his wife, um, about that choice, that they get a big bonus because they can kill a big star like Janet Lee and nobody will see that coming. In terms of onset drama, um, there's this tension between the latitude that Hitchcock gives uh, the writer, Stefano, and also uh, the people doing the musical score, and the complete lack of, um, of latitude and autonomy that he gives his actors. Hitchcock said to Janet Lee, the camera is absolute. You move when it moves. Um, there's even a, a section of the making of the film where he stops filming and teaches Perkins move by move how to roll up the body in the shower curtain. So he really, really controls um, the, the moves of his actors uh, in front of the camera. He's also really involved um, in an interesting way in the marketing of the film. You already mentioned the um, no entry after the film starts policy. There's actually a big sign posted outside of a lot of theaters when the film is released, um, and it's a life-size cardboard cutout of Hitchcock himself um, holding a small sign that says, We won't allow you to cheat yourself. You must enjoy Psycho from beginning to end. No one, no, not even the theater manager's brother, the president of the United States, or the Queen of England, God bless her, may enter late. Uh, which I, I thought was pretty um, pretty hilarious, because you can kind of hear that in Hitchcock's tone of voice. Um, one more thing they do to confuse the audience is that um, in variety and, and film magazines like that, they put out casting notices for Mrs. Bates. Uh, they also release a number of promo shots 
um, of a woman, various women, standing in front of a director chair, the kind you see on film sets that has Mrs. Bates uh, embroidered on it. A um, couple of other interesting tidbits that I picked up from this documentary. Uh, one, in the shower scene, um, there's a big collaboration between Janet Lee and the film's costume designer to try to figure out how to make her look naked but not be naked. Uh, she's actually wearing moleskin, the, the stuff that you put on your uh, foot so that your shoes don't give you blisters um, over strategically placed areas. Lee works on the film for only three weeks, but one of those three weeks is entirely taken up with the shower scene. Um, also, and this is the most interesting thing I learned from this documentary, um, this film and the shower scene specifically has one of the first ever uses of a uh, nude body double in film and shockingly that nude body double was later murdered by an obsessed psycho fan uh, so that is life imitating art in a very oh, terrible okay. way one last I guess two last things uh, Hitchcock did not like the psychiatrist's speech at the end he thought it was too heavy handed I agree um, so Charles I'm interested to hear your professional opinion about that later um, and also that speech exists in the film because Stefano, the writer, was attending a Freudian analyst at the time. Um, so that's why he puts all that stuff in. Um, and lastly, uh, Janet Lee says in the documentary that I watched that after filming Psycho, she only took baths and never took showers again, which <laughs> uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Yep. Yeah, I'll talk Definitely. a little bit. I'll talk a little bit later about uh, the psychology in Psycho, but I will say my reaction to that scene uh, is fairly negative. After all the drama and murder and all that good stuff, uh, it just brings the movie to a stumbling halt and kind of kills all the momentum. Yeah, it tells you so much at once for a film that is really about just like meeting out tiny bits of information yeah. and surprising you at every turn. It's just like, yep. here's a really long winded explanation. Yeah, it sounds that explanation always to me seems like someone was like, OK, I paid attention to the very first lecture in my Psych 101 class. This is what I remember. And just like condensed <laughs> all of it into into what feels like a very long scene, but I mean, it may not, it may just be because we're just looking at that, uh, the actor playing the psychiatrist. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of those uh, 1950s giant insect movies in which we've got to have uh, Professor Science kind of, you know, sit us all down and say, all right, this is radiation. When radiation interacts with the grasshopper, it may create a giant grasshopper. And let's talk about it. No. Let's get back to the giant grasshoppers. So yeah, we've just yeah. had yeah we, we just had the big reveal. It's like okay, everybody sit down for you know I don't yeah I don't know how long it was, but it does feel really long. Well, and I think part of that goes to show like we we so much want a scientific explanation for stuff. Like we want there to be some sort of grounded thing, and and so he he really kind of hams it in there at the end. And you see that a lot, I think, in movies today where it's like the modern Godzilla movie where there are all these kind of 
um, oh, this is the scientific myth. I was like, no, it can just be a giant monster. I've already have enough suspension of disbelief that I can have an atomic breath monster. I don't really need the scientific background for why it's actually believable. So I don't know. But how else will you learn that atomic bombs are bad? You know, I'm an American. Apparently, we just like them. I don't know what to tell you. But the one thing that that uh, makes me think of is in in my previous job or my previous iteration, um, I when I worked for CPS, we gave lots and lots of um, credence to what our uh, therapist would say in terms of when it was time for parents. You know, should children go home? Should they not go home? And so, I think this also kind of shows that you know we're we're putting this kind of medicine psychology uh, we're putting it on a pedestal to solve things that sometimes are actually unsolvable, right? Um, that we they they treat it as if uh, like he is literally seeing inside Norman's brain, and it's just like ah, this is exactly what God told me. I'm just writing it down because it. There's so much of that, I think, in that specific scene, because I'm sitting here thinking, like, how long, how did he actually get all of that? And, like, you know, that's a lot that he apparently got out in, like, an hour conversation with him. Yeah, apparently Mother was uh, pretty chatty and and had quite a lot of, uh, sort of, you know, uh, self-awareness as to where she came from. But but at least to the film's credit, it doesn't end with the explanation, right? We get that final horribly creepy scene where right. the uh, the mother's skull is just for a second superimposed over Perkins's face, and you you sort of get the idea that she's she's there to stay now. Yeah, and oh, it's it's. It's so creepy. But there are so many very creepy scenes in this movie. Um, And I feel like for me, like the thing that if I'm like, what's the creepiest shot? It it is not the actual shower scene. It's the scene immediately after. Um, It's the shot where like Marion, her dead, it's her dead body and it starts in on her eye and it just kind of pulls out. Yeah. To me, because like her face is so blank and I'm like, and I kept being like, is that her? Is that her? Like, that has to be, like, because she just looks so dead. Like, there's, there doesn't look, there's no expression in her face. And so, to me, that's the creepiest scene right there. It was not, and, and not the actual immediate, like, the shower scene in quotation marks right before. It is really her. Um, and also, Alma Hitchcock, who, you know, was, like, on every set and knew everything about everything, made them reshoot that a bunch of times because uh, she was the only one who saw in the dailies that at one point Janet Lee actually inhales um, while she's on the floor. And so, um, because she used to be a film editor, the period in which they did it frame by frame, you know, like, with actual cells... Um, she had a really good eye for that kind of thing. Um, so it is it is her, um, and it was quite a tough thing to shoot. I bet. So, um, what you said earlier about so, you know, um, science, uh, medical science needing to give us an explanation of what doesn't really need an explanation, uh, that just made me think of the, uh, the remake of Halloween. Um, so for our listeners who are not horror fans, um, if you go all the way back to you know wh- what is pretty much the slasher film, Halloween, 
we are explicitly not given any kind of psychological explanation for Michael Myers' uh, murderous ways. Uh, we get this uh, character who is a psychiatrist at the institution where Myers has been um, uh, confined, and his explanation is simply that you know he looked into Myers' eyes and it's just evil. There's nothing in there but evil, and we don't you know there, we don't know why. We don't get a exposition scene for the psychology of evil or anything like that. And one of the things that uh, really irritated a lot of horror fans. Uh, when, I'm kind of shooting from the hip here, so I might be wrong about some of the details. I think it was Rob Zombie who did the uh, remake of uh, Halloween. Um, but anyway, with the remake of Halloween, uh, we are given a psychological explanation, and all the fans were furious because it was so unnecessary, and it kind of ruined uh, the horribleness of this character. Which remake are you talking about? Are you talking about the one that's out right now? Uh, no, the previous one. Okay, because the one that's out right now, um, I I don't think, I mean, I haven't seen it because I I don't honestly watch that stuff. Um, I'm a super wimp about horror movies, especially slasher movies. Um, so I don't watch it. But um, we should say there is a an interesting Psycho Halloween connection in that um. The star of both the original Halloween film and the current, uh, I think, just premiered last Friday um, Halloween is, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, daughter of Janet Lee in Psycho. So uh, sort of mm -hmm. Scream Queen dynasty going on there. Darn right. And I just checked IMDb. And yes, I was right. So um, the one that I'm criticizing is the 2007 Halloween remake. Uh, which was directed by uh, and directed and written by Rob Zombie. Well, one of the things that uh, you were, we were saying, uh, or I was saying a moment ago about that, the idea that like we have to have a scientific explanation for this, I think that's very interesting. That like he he really pushes that for Psycho, but in the Birds, three years later, like the whole point is that there is no explanation, right? That it's just this like almost you know Egyptian plague that comes down on this. <laughs> seaside California town then they come and they leave and there's no explanation and so obviously I think uh, Hitchcock's trying to say very different things with that but it's not something that he but using the birds to say that he, that's not forcing an explanation on the audience is not something that he has done in all of his other movies right and, and as we said he did not like that bit that's true Okay, uh, so Sarah, how was Psycho received? Uh, the crit critics like it. Had it to do with the box office? Uh, did was this one of these films that both critics and audiences appreciated, or was there a, a division? Well, it's kind of interesting because when you when you try to look at reviews of Psycho, you have the stuff from when it originally came out, and then you have all of this kind of people almost like retconning their opinion you know the new york times you know 50 year on a 50 year retrospective is oh this is this a great amazing film we loved it these are all these amazing things he does and the original um review in say the times was like oh, i mean it's obviously very low budget but it is pretty good job for it being so low budget and, you know 
a lot of what people talked about is they're like, what is what is Hitchcock doing? This is, you know, most of the critics were very confused because he had done these big, beautiful technicolor things. Like he had just finished North by Northwest, like Victoria had mentioned, and that's beautiful and color, all this kind of stuff. And he comes to this very small budget black and white movie and that originally he was so kind of unimpressed with it that lots of people were just like a couple of the reviews were even like this just felt like one of his TV shows that he's padded out to two hours. You know what what was really happening here? Um, and so there was um, and so the actual critics seemed to be a little annoyed that he was kind of breaking that now we're like, oh, look at the amazingness of how he broke these rules. But at the time, they're kind of like, you know, he's breaking a lot of rules. We're not sure how we feel about this. <laughs> but the actual public seemed to really, really enjoy the film. Um, it was made for less than a million, about 800000 and and uh, got $32 million on release. So it was obviously this huge uh, box office success. Um, and the thing about it is as uh, that so much of that also uh, played in on the marketing that Victoria also mentioned, that so much of this, like, you know, you can't come in after the the movie starts and it it becomes a very very big thing, um, and so now you um, it's obviously incredibly famous and the shower scene I would argue is probably what the most the most famous iconic what scene in I'll say Western cinema American cinema will be very will be more specific in American cinema I can't think of a more famous scene. Um, I think you're right, Sarah. I mean, I think the fact that you only need to you don't need to see the scene for it to be evoked you kind of only need the first two or three notes of that score that you know <laughs> plays um during uh during that bit yeah i'll i'll talk more about that um in a minute okay and yeah there's it's it's just it you know and for lack of a better word it's psycho and it's it's brought this, you know, very, at the time, what I'm presuming is a fairly technical term into this very kind of common vernacular, and then now it's just like, oh, she's crazy, she's, you know, she's psycho, and it basically, you know, oh, she likes to cause a lot of drama, all this kind of stuff, and so that it's it's taken this very kind of scary thing and, and really brings it uh, out into, you know, an everyday, uh, everyday term, and especially with, you know, to me, the, the the biggest thing is Janet Lee, the very famous woman, getting murdered. Basically, what a fourth of the way into the movie, the big star. You know, you still have horror movies uh, riffing on that to this day. In fact, I will not name the movie because it's a fairly it's one that's out recently. But I went to go see a movie where a one of basically to me the biggest name star dies about a quarter of the way in, and I'm like, oh, this is a Psycho thing. Like they got this from Psycho. And so there's just so much of it that it just continues to influence. And so it's it's so funny that it's something that initially people were just like, well, we're not sure about this. You know, the audience loved it because it was a slasher film and that it it took critics longer to come around on it than it did the actual public. Right. Uh, if you want an example that is not, uh, you know, up to the minute current, uh, we could talk about uh, 1996 uh, Scream. Uh, in which uh, Drew Barrymore, uh, by far the biggest star that they had there, uh, is murdered in the opening scene. Yeah, that was such a huge deal when I saw that in high school, because um, Drew Barrymore was 
you know, like in all these teen movies. Um, and at that point, I don't think I was old enough to understand what Scream was really doing, um, the extent to which it was sort of riffing on and, and making jokes about um, horror as a genre. But I remember being super disappointed uh, <laughs> as a teenager because, like, I'm going to see this Drew Barrymore movie and she dies, like, immediately. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she's supposed to be the final girl. Um. Yeah. I, I'm sure we've probably talked about the idea of final girls um, on the Christian Feminist podcast. How, do we need to define that term here? Uh, we probably I, should. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah, um, final girl. Uh, really briefly, is sort of it's it's a common trope of uh, horror movies, uh, especially uh, especially the slasher films, in which uh, we sort of have the designated survivor. There is one character who 99.9% .9 of the time is a girl, uh, some uh, attractive young woman uh, to whom the audience is supposed to attach sympathy, uh, who will be menaced and threatened and she will suffer, and if anybody is going to survive, it's going to be her. Um, sometimes they'll pull a switcheroo and kill the final girl, but she'll be the last one to die, and we'll all be shocked and horrified because uh, and only those other. That's, That's the right. Big part. She's that not the, the big slutty part. one. Yes, virtue greatly increases the probability that you will survive. I mean, until you get, you know, things that are riffing on the trope of the final girl later, things Bloody like. Barb. Um, wow. Oh, Barb. Hashtag justice for Barb. Um, but I was thinking of, of things like um, Death Proof or um, actually I think last year, maybe two years ago, there was a, a movie called Final Girls um, in which these 21st century teenage girls are transferred by magic means into a 1970s slasher flick. Um, and it's sort of all about that whole sex and gender horror movie thing. I love that movie. That was hilarious. I haven't seen it. I want to. It, they it, it, they don't just play with the final girl trope. They're playing with all of the tropes. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds like it should be my Halloween um, <laughs> experience this year. Oh, we should also say um, the best description of the final girl that there is is in Carol Clover's book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. Um, if you're interested in gender and horror, um, that's where you need to go. Yeah, that, 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 I've heard that one mentioned a lot. That's a classic in the field. Uh, another one that uh, really plays on this uh, is the, uh, the Joss Whedon uh, film Cabin in the Woods. Love Cabin in the Woods. Yes, Love. I mean, I, I just focusing on the final girl thing. They sort of explicitly lay out that it's not really important whether or not the final girl lives. It's that she makes it to be the final girl, uh, to the point that when the final girl is having her final confrontation with the killer on the dock of the uh, the, the lake, we turn away from her and she's sort of fighting in the background while uh, all the characters in the office are breaking out the uh, the tequila. Um, because well we're done, and you know whether she lives or dies is you know immaterial. I think we've gone a little far afield from Psycho, but anyway, yes, uh, one would expect that Janet Lee would be uh, a bit longer lived in Psycho. So uh, it's my turn again. So it's time to get a psychological on Psycho. 
Now, as was mentioned, the movie Psycho uh, was based on a 1959 novel of the same name, written by Robert Bloch, and it's generally believed that the character of Norman Bates was based on the real-life serial killer Ed Gein, who was arrested in 1957 uh, and served as the inspiration for a range of uh, movie killers, including Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, like Norman Bates, Gein had a dominating, domineering mother who kept him isolated, and her death in 1945 sent Gein over the edge. When officers raided the Gein farm, they found a collection of body parts, uh, some from his victims and some from grave robbing, uh, and masks and clothing made from human skin. Uh, at one point he told authorities he was making a woman suit so that he could become his mother. Gein was diagnosed with schizophrenia, found not guilty by reason of insanity, and spent the last of his days committed to the Mendota Mental Institute. Now, while Ed Gein was diagnosed with schizophrenia, Norman Bates is described as having what we would today call dissociative identity disorder. Previously, it was called multiple personality disorder. Uh, before that, it, would call, it was called split personality. Uh, in the DSM-5, dissociative identity disorder is characterized by, uh, quote, the presence of two or more distinct personality states or an experience of possession and recurrent episodes of amnesia, unquote. In at least 90% of cases, DID involves severe childhood abuse uh, and is a response to traumatic occurrences. In Psycho, the psychiatrist character says that Norman was already deeply disturbed as a child, uh, and in one of the sequels, uh, 1990's Psycho 4, The Beginning, we're shown that Norman suffered uh, severe emotional and physical abuse. The development of multiple personalities is a defense mechanism. Uh, it's a way of protecting the self from an overwhelming anxiety or threat. Norman Bates was abused, isolated, simultaneously dependent on his mother and afraid of her. When she hooked up with a lover, he reacted to the loss of his only attachment figure by murdering both her and her boyfriend. Uh, that act so traumatized him that he had to protect himself by dissociating himself from the event, stealing and preserving his mother's body, acting as if she was alive. Some clinicians have noted that people with DID may carry on conversations between their personalities, uh, although the more common pattern is gaps in memory when an alternate personality is active. Uh, while a surprising number of elements in Psycho do fit with the scholarly literature on DID, uh, one thing that is entirely incorrect is a comment made by the psychiatrist in, uh, when he says that alternate personalities always exist in battle with each other, and that the mother's personality had the goal of uh, overwhelming and destroying Norman's original personality. Now that part does not fit. Uh, as the reason that alters exist is to provide protection for the individual. Uh, when clinics note conflict between alters, it is due to incompatible needs or agendas, but not a desire to destroy. So overall, uh, I give Psycho a uh, 65 to 70% in psychological plausibility. Uh, showing us, I mean, yes, a very extreme case, a very rare individual, uh, but the kind of person who might maybe exist on this planet for the most part. So, uh, we turn to the, uh, the legacy of Psycho. Uh, Sarah, I've seen Psycho called a proto-slasher, uh, which seems to connect it to horror. Uh, would you agree with this genre classification? And what impact did Psycho have on horror films? Well, I think 
it's it's very hard to call something like Psycho a like a slasher movie or a horror movie because a lot of times we want to reserve those time because we say like a slasher film is a is a negative is something we say negatively about something like Saw or something like that like oh that's just a slasher movie it's torture porn so like and so the idea that like that that could be essentially a just a neutral description sometimes uh, feels a little wrong because so frequently it's used to, to denigrate other films, right? But I really, I mean, it is. I just finished watching uh, earlier today a documentary called uh, 7852, which is in reference to the uh, the 78 camera setups and the basically the 52 cuts or edits over the three minutes of the shower scene. And the way they have everything, the way they have everything set up and the influence that this genuinely had is remarkable. One, showing that horror uh, could be, um, it could be very personal. One of the things that they talked about, so I'm going to, all the things I'm about to say are from there, so I, I take no credit for it, is that all of the kind of the scary movies that we'd watched um, as Americans previously uh, if it was a real, if it was a horror movie, then it was you know mechanical bees from space invasion kind of thing. Uh, that very kind of C, <laughs> that you know 50s C movie horror uh, that we again that we could and we could say oh it's it's a horror movie and it, that was that was a, that was a term of derision. And so for Psycho to take the to take the genre that previously had 100% been considered, you know, very essentially in very poor taste for teenagers, and for him to so incredibly expertly craft it. I mean, there is so much going on um, in the shower scene immediately before the shower scene. One of the things that um, there's so much in there is really a remarkable, remarkable achievement, and you, you see other horror and other uh, directors kind of coming after that. But the thing that he did is that he, he made it personal. This is something that you could really see happening to you. That you're, you know, you're driving along um, pre-interstate, you go into your small town, you get in your uh, small uh, 1950s style motel. And this is something that you could, you know, nobody's actually scared of mechanical bees from space, but... This is a very, very personal thing. That's why I didn't want to rewatch last night when I was by myself, because this is a scary thing. Um, and it was probably the first time we really saw violence really being done upon a woman's body. Um, in other Hitchcock films, so in, say, like, Notorious, you know, they're, you know, yes, they're trying to kill Ingrid Bergman in Notorious, but it's, you know, they're slowly poisoning her, or, you know, you kind of see somebody gesturing with a with a silken... Um, scarf that they're going to strangle, but this, you know, the, and obviously the the knife doesn't actually touch her, but this uh, the suggestion of extreme violence being kind of put on the human body um, is a very new thing, and so that kind of opens up kind of a Pandora's box for so many other people to kind of take that and run with it. And again, for him to do something that most of the time we'd say, oh, it's a horror mill film, it's a slasher film, and that's 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 a term of derision and why we shouldn't take it seriously. But no, this is a, this is a horror film. Um, and this is, can be a slasher film because again, 
Marion, uh, Marion Crane is not the only person that dies. Arbogast dies. We have, you know, lots of, a couple of other murders that end up being solved. Uh, about five or six, I think, by the end of this movie, of these murders have been solved. And so I think, I think that it, it, it proudly, I think, would be a, a horror and a slasher film and not just, you know, and not as a term of derision, but that, that's genuinely what it is. And I think the fact that the last shot of the film is them dragging the car out of the lake, um, I think is supposed to leave us with the idea that maybe there are other cars in that lake, that, like, we probably haven't seen the end of, of this. Oh, well, yeah. There, yeah, there was uh, sort of an offhand comment about uh, other other young women who had disappeared. So, yeah, there, we might be pulling more bodies out of that swamp. Well, and one of the things that, that they do a lot, um, especially in that, that scene, is they do a really good job of kind of putting you in Marion's place. And so what it feels like is not that you are... That's why that scene becomes so scary, right? It's not because you're not looking from Norman's side. And so they do this amazing... You know, you start off with that scene of looking up at the shower head. And y'all can't see me, but I'm gesturing wildly while I do this. <laughs> To be, because that's Marion's vision, right? Like you're seeing what she's seeing. You're looking up at the shower head, and then it kind of comes down, and you're, and then you are seeing her from kind of one plane of vision. You're seeing her from uh, the side of where the shower curtain would be, and then the camera and the shots kind of rotate as she's moving in the shower, and you're kind of like, huh? Well, now we're on the other side, and it's kind of positioned um, at an angle looking out, and so you kind of have Marion in kind of the lower um, right corner. And you have this kind of vast white um, op- uh, white space that there's nothing there. And, and so you're kind of over like, why is there this vast? And then you see the shadowy figure kind of coming in. And it's, and it's nothing. There's no sound. There's no, no background music. It's the shower, the shower curtain. And then you hear the wrenching of the shower curtain open. And then that's when you get like the violent violin music. And so, you know, that that's obviously a very compelling thing. And and Herman, uh, Bernard Herman, who did the score, um, said his reason for having the score being composed entirely of strings um, was because of the, the tension of the string instruments, the idea that these are instruments played through tension, um, and also the idea that he thought... Um, the bareness of a string score made black and white music that fit the black and white aesthetic of the film, uh, which I think is, is kind of a beautiful way to put that. Huh. So one of the things uh, that I also learned from this documentary that I thought you, particularly Victoria, would find interesting is the, um, the painting that uh, Norman has to move to, to peep in uh, at uh, Marion Crane, that is a painting of Susanna and the Elders. Wow. Yeah, that's what. And apparently, I don't remember which version it is uh, because obviously there are lots of versions of that. But it's it's one where like it's not one where it's like oh she's like petitely looking. No, it's one where like legit they're like grabbing her body and like she's her hair is being torn. And all of that, and so he, and so he moves. That's the picture he moves to look through and look at her. And to me, you said it. Um, you said that the scene after the shower scene is the scariest scene. To me, I think the him peeping through the hole is the scariest scene. Because um, I don't like just as a woman, 
all, all the vulnerability of that um, is is just super creepy to me. Like, I, I feel like a lot of women have probably been in situations, maybe not as blatant as that one, but been in a situation where you feel like your body is being observed more than you're maybe comfortable with. Um, I did not know that about the painting. I think that's fascinating. Uh, also, something I learned about that scene um, from my research into this episode is the first time we see Marion in her underwear in the scene with the boyfriend. Um, her slip and bra are white because she hasn't stolen the money yet. But then in the scene where uh, Norman peeps at her, her underwear are black because she's sort of crossed this moral threshold um, into sin and deception after uh, stealing the money. So I think that's interesting, and also it makes makes uh, his voyeurism of her kind of darker and, and dirtier somehow. The black underwear are naughtier than the white underwear. Well, thus, and... thus disqualifying her as a proper final girl. True, yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, we no, go. but the final girl is obviously Lila, because Lila's obviously the actual final girl. She's the one that makes it out of here and lives, and apparently steals her sister's boyfriend. So she gets to live and have sex, is what we're saying? Probably? Yes. You just have to do it right. Virtuously. <laughs> um, I know lots of people have talked about this. What do y'all make of the, the scene when uh, uh, Marion and uh uh, Norman are talking, and we're in the parlor, and you just have all the birds because. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Because you you have one, you have like these kind of. I thought probably the. Uh, I'm presuming we're supposed to just figure out that you know we're relating him to these birds because they're these kind of owls in flight, and so owls are, are predator birds, but they're silent and they hunt at night. Um. And then, you know, Marion is kind of juxtaposed on the other side next to these, like, smaller, much smaller birds. Um, and even her last name, Crane. And then the line where... Oh, wow. I totally didn't even think of that. I feel so dumb. I've seen this movie, like, a hundred times, and I did not realize that she is also a bird. That's yeah, tremendous. Yeah, and so this, this you know, she is a bird. Um, he talks about how she eats like a bird. Um... And then he, you know, and so you have these kind of winged owls or, like, birds of prey that are kind of, like, superimposed, like, well, not superimposed, but behind his head. And then he has that line, um, that wonderful line of, oh, my mother, she's as harmless as one of these stuffed birds because his mother is a, a corpse that he has, <laughs> that he has dug up. Yeah, like, there, there's so much, like, stuff in that one scene, and you, you can almost see Marion's eyes when she gets the idea, like, she's trying to be polite, trying to be nice to this guy who's kind of hitting on her, and she'd really rather be on, in her room, that she's trying to be polite. And so she's kind of like, well, maybe... And you, you can kind of see the moment when, like, she's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm done being nice to this creepy dude. But, like, that conversation is actually where she's like, ugh, I can't, I can't be alone and on the outs, like, by myself like this guy. And her conversation with him is actually what makes her decide, like, oh, I should go back and I should face what's going on because I don't want to end up like this whack job. Because you see her, like, totaling the money, like, oh, can I, should I, can I put this? How will this work? And so she's obviously planning on going back the next day. Like, she says she's going to go back. 
Um, and then, you know, cause he's like, he is so weird. I cannot end up like him. Also right after the shower scene, when Norman shows up, uh, to, uh, you know, clean up the body and all the mess, uh, he bumps against the wall and knocks a painting off the wall and, uh, we get to see it fall to the floor and it is a painting of a bird. Oh, so yeah. So many, so many really very like cool things that, you know, the first time you're viewing it, you don't get, and then. It's a movie that just that just really really rewards uh, rewatching. Yeah. Okay. In uh, in 2010, uh, there were a number of publications that came out uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary of Psycho. Uh, Victoria, uh, what can you tell us about Psycho as a cultural landmark and the cultural impact of this film? Uh, so this was the toughest um, part of this episode for me to plan for, just because there's so much. I mean, it's so culturally ubiquitous at this point. Um, it was difficult for me to narrow this down, so it's in no way uh, exhaustive. But I, I decided to start with uh, imdb.com and see how it organized the information. Uh, on IMDb, there are 1,261 references to Psycho in other pieces of pop culture listed. That's a lot. Um, they begin fairly immediately uh, and humorously in 1961 with Tony Perkins' appearance on the family game show, I've Got a Secret. Haha. Ha. Um, <laughs> not making that up. That's real. Um, and then... They go chronologically all the way through um, 2018. The last chronologically listed reference is uh, a scene from the recent comedy thriller Game Night, in which a character reveals the murdered corpse of another character uh, by spinning around a swivel chair. Most of the references to Psycho from other pop cultural artifacts are to either that reveal scene or to the shower scene. Those are sort of the two pieces of the film that stick out the most um, in other culture. They appear in a variety of genres. Pretty much every crime procedural that exists has either done a psycho homage episode or um, something that has a sight gag from one or both of those two scenes. Uh, Grimm, Supernatural, Castle, Bones... Um, I think there's even a, a like a Law and Order Halloween episode that does that. Um, if it's a crime procedural, it has a psycho reference. Also, tons of references that I think really cement the cultural um, impact of the film occur in the form of parody. Shows like Saturday Night Live, Mystery Science Theater, The Simpsons um, show how ubiquitous this film is because it can just be a quick humorous sight gag and people immediately understand what you're doing and what you're referencing. Um, it's really such an understood and expected part of popular culture that these references don't even have to register as coherent references anymore, um, at least not immediately. For example, um, in an episode of the Tina Fey and Robert Carlock pinned sitcom 30 Rock, uh, there's this character, Kenneth, who is goofy and kind of a mama's boy. Um, and in one episode out of nowhere, even though we've already met his physically alive mother, um, he refers to a skeleton in a wig as his mother for no apparent reason, um, just like out of nowhere in the episode. So that that isn't coherent, um, but... 
it is given coherence through its connection to the psycho narrative um, and because he's a weirdo with some strange parental attachments. So it, it works on one level, even as it doesn't work um, within its own universe. Um, I should also say there are a number of psycho sequels in terms of its cultural impact. Um, I don't think any of them are terribly good. At least I should say the ones I have seen are not good, though I haven't seen all of them. Uh, first, there are two feature-length films, Psycho 2 in 1983 and Psycho 3 in 1986. I have seen both of those. They both star Tony Perkins as Norman Bates again, um, and they are more camp than thriller, um, though they're trying to be both at once. Um, they're self-referential and goofy and silly. Later, there are two made-for-TV movies, Bates Motel in 1987 and Psycho for the Beginning, which Charles already mentioned, in 1990. Um, the first is a sequel in which a man who rooms with Norman in the psychiatric ward takes over Bates Motel, um, and then, wouldn't you know it, some bad stuff starts to happen. Uh, and then the second is a prequel... Um, which I haven't seen, but Charles already mentioned some stuff about... Um, then the probably most famous, I can't call it a sequel because it's not, um, the 1998 Gus Van Zandt directed shot for shot remake, um, which I think doesn't need to exist. Uh, what do you guys think? Have you seen the Van Zandt remake? Haven't seen it, but everybody that I've read who has seen it has agreed with you. It, it was a technically competent shot-for-shot shot remake, but beyond that, there isn't a lot beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I think if Van Zant says, you know, that he's trying to prove to us how innovative and, and well-shot the original is, like... Bro, we know we can just watch the original and see that. Like we no one no one needs you to do this. Like good for you for enjoying it. But yeah. a, but a that's not a controversial opinion. And b like just just why? I mean, it it reminds me a little bit of this of all the uh shout out to the um before they were live, all the Disney remakes. In the sense of like, oh, we love. I mean, no, this is clearly just a cash grab. Whatever it is that you are saying is your justification for this, you just want to make money. And you know, for I, it, I've I've never seen a remake that was uh, live or otherwise that was ever on sequels, maybe, but uh, that was actually on par with the original. And of course, you know, part of what makes Psycho so amazing is. There's a grittiness that's Im that's imbued by the by the black and white, and that when you do a remake in color, um, and it just it loses. Uh, I did want to mention just quickly one more um, psycho appropriation, one that I enjoyed until I didn't, um, and that is the 2013 uh, series Bates Motel, starring Freddie Highmore as Norman and Vera Farmiga as Norma Bates. Um, do you guys watch that at all? No, I haven't. I haven't. I watched the first season and quit. Um, Sadly, I was very disappointed in where the first uh, the first season ended up. I, I had a lot of potential, at least I thought it did. Um, the costumes are great. The set is great. Um, Heimler's face really, really recalls um, Tony Perkins a lot in ways that are quite unsettling. 
and um, and it, it has some interesting things to say about sort of where evil comes from, but ultimately it was just too tidy for me. Um, for example, in the first couple of episodes, um, we, you know, Norma is very overbearing as um, the, it sort of does this really heavy-handed Freudian thing. Um, and Norman doesn't really have a lot of friends, so he makes friends with this dog and um, in, in his town. And the dog gets hit by a car, and that's very sad. And then... Um, this kind of creepy girl in his class at school says um, that she can fix his problem with uh, his dead dog friend. And wouldn't you know it, her father is an amateur taxidermist. Um, and then so he teaches Norman how to stuff animals and things just sort of ramp up from there. Um, but he was just like things like that that are very tidy. Um, there's also very early in um, very early in the show a shot of Vera Farmiga's Norma um, in a sort of small flower print dress um, sitting in a rocking chair um, and there's a window behind her so the angle is wrong but it's it's very very like see what I did there and uh, so things like that to me just made the show to uh, made it not work very well it was trying too hard it was trying too hard, but also, like, when you're riffing on something like Psycho that is so visually recognizable, how are you going to not try too hard? Because everyone knows what the shots look like. Anyway, so I guess yep. uh, all of that is to say Psycho has a huge cultural impact. There are a bunch of references, a bunch of sequels, um, pretty unavoidable at this point in cultural history. Yeah, I would put it. I would put Psycho up there, uh, kind of along with Star Wars. Not in the sense of like fandom or anything, but in the sense of just like cultural ubiquity. That even though you don't watch it, you you, you kind of know what it's about. You've heard it. You you've seen people make the like the the hand gesture, like the stabby hand gesture at work because you know they're annoyed at something someone did, and so they do the little e You know, like it's it's very much a part of. Um, pop culture and so that even if you're not you haven't seen the movie you recognize it like oh that's the thing from psycho you know it's just um yeah it's it's definitely uh and for a movie that uh people or that um hitchcock so so was like don't spoil it don't spoil it don't spoil it like it's been spoiled for everyone now <laughs> there is even since you mentioned star wars a psycho reference in uh star wars did you guys know this I did no. not. You so have to tell me. I learned this uh, prepping for this episode. And so in the documentary I watched, one of the um, people who worked with Bernard Herrmann, the composer, also worked on Star Wars. And uh, he put – so when he's putting in the tent music to set the scene, the sort of um, filler music that they're not really going to use in the film, the part where – Luke and Han um, land the Millennium Falcon on the Death Star, and they're, like, about to pop up through the floor. He uses the same three notes. Uh, well, he uses, like, the actual three notes from Psycho um, in the prep music when they are coming on to the Death Star. And then so John Williams heard it and liked it so much that he puts those same three notes in that order in the score in that moment. So there is Psycho in Star Wars. That's really cool. Ah, I love it. All right. 
I did not expect that I would have my uh, Star Wars geekdom expanded uh, today. Thank you. Happy to be of service. All right. Uh, so turning back to the portrayal of psychological matters in the film, uh, Sarah, I believe you uh, you wanted to talk a bit about how Psycho has influenced popular understandings of psychiatric terms and behaviors. Yes. Um, that's a, that's a much more fan, uh, important sounding question than I think I'll actually be able to answer. But for me, <laughs> um, I think that this movie, it's one of the few times where we get, or one, I think probably the first time where we really get any sort of depiction of um, probably a psychologist kind of working and doing his job. And psychiatry was still at that point a very new thing um, in the terms of like the American consciousness, right? Like, you know, and my understanding is this whole thing with a uh, psycho comes from, uh, is this from what psychoanalyze? What, what, what is that psycho actually coming from? Do we, uh, uh, I, I would assume it would come from psychotic. Okay, so like psychosis. Yeah, uh, psychosis represent uh, referring to a loss of contact with reality. Okay, okay. Well, and so the idea behind all this is like, this is for American culture. You know, psychology, psychiatry was still a very, very new new field um and you know later on you get uh some depictions you know the only one that i'm really coming to at the moment is you know you have bob newhart um later on about three decades later you have you know martin and uh nile or you have the uh fraser and niles crane um but we don't and actually Lilith, she's a psychiatrist too don't forget her yes um, and so the idea is like, this isn't something that we, if, you know, psychiatry and psychology is not something that it's not like, it's not like being a lawyer. It's not like working in a hospital where it, you know, if you took the amount of like, uh, legal and medical dramas, it would, if that accurately depicted American life, then 90% of every American, like every American would either be a nurse or a cop. Um, and so this isn't something that we actually get a lot of exposure to and so i think that the, the the little bit that we get at that very end of the movie is profoundly influential on how regular people think this actually goes um because i mean we still have stereotypes of you know the couch of you know laying on the couch and you know the the, the guy in the tweed blazer with the with the little elbow patches kind of you know um who is just talking about freud all the time even though a Nobody cares about him anymore, apparently. So I read when I was reading The Atlantic. Um, <laughs> and so you, and that a lot of the stuff in this, um, you that all, that most of the psychiatrist, the psych, what he's talking about, the psychiatrist at the end, apparently it is all very, very Freudian. And that, you know, when I was looking up a lot of this stuff in preparation, the thing I kept thinking about when it was uh, talking about like a psychoanalysis and all this stuff in the 50s and 60s, is it was giving me the list of all these famous names. I think I kept thinking, I was like, man, these are a lot of Germans. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, that we, America just really embraced this idea in a way that like England, Canada, like France, like other like westernized countries were not like, oh, we're going to be little, but America, we were like, we love this idea. We love this idea that, you know, somebody's going to kind of magically see inside of your head, right? And so I think that, that Psycho really, especially with that ending scene of this almost deus ex machina, that's not really, I guess, the proper term, because he's not really, he's not really, like, saving 
anything. But he's coming and he's like, these are all the answers you wanted to know about everything because I am a psychiatrist. Right. Me- medical exposition is what I've uh, usually seen that called. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, you're right. That's the more accurate term. But he kind of comes in and just kind of solves like every small question you had, I have filled in the answer for. Um, and I think and, that there is. And Hitchcock I, himself calls it the hat hander. Mm-hmm. Um, like you've just hand your hat to you. Now we're done. Now you can leave. Everything is over. <laughs> Well, there is a, uh, a historical, uh, a fairly large historical reason uh, for uh, all these uh, German psychiatrists in uh, in North America. Um, is that you know, World War II? Well, it was. I mean, uh, so psychoanalysis, uh, Vienna was the real center of it. You had uh, the the three big uh, schools of psychiatry in Vienna. So there, there's Freudian psychoanalysis, there's uh, Viktor Frankl's uh, logotherapy, and uh, Adlerian um, uh, individual psychology. But yeah, we get to the 1930s, and uh, so quite the, the majority of these people are German Jews. Uh, and for that reason, the Nazis really didn't like psychiatry. They thought it was too Jewish. Uh, and so the late 30s, early 40s, we get a whole bunch of these uh, German-Jewish uh, you know, eminent psychiatrists who really need to get the heck out of town. Uh, and so they, uh, you know, they cross the ocean uh, to get away from the you know, creepy guy with the little mustache. Well, I mean, that that is good to know. That kind of explains how, why so much of it was a very much in America versus, again, I, I was kind of doing some background reading on, on this, and, you know, they, they had just done, I think maybe a year or two ago, a fairly extensive um, article in The Atlantic about um, Freud's um, reputation and, like, how it goes up and down and up again and all that kind of thing. And so they were talking about, like, what, you know, that's, and they actually mentioned uh, Psycho in that, that just, the idea of like psychoanalysts and being able to put everything down to something that happened in your childhood or attach attachment to a parent or something like that um, was a very Freudian idea. And so that it, because it was so it permeated the culture so much and they mentioned it popping up in movies like psycho. Well, I mean, it, um, it is certainly uh, a more realistic depiction than uh, psychiatry in uh, 1957. I was a teenage werewolf. Uh, in which we are shown I that, love that uh, movie. psychoanalysis uh, can turn you into a murderous lycanthrope through sort of an evolutionary past life regression. I therapy. mean, can you prove that it can't, Charles? Well, it turned Michael Landon into a werewolf, so obviously it can. But yeah, I think there's 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 a lot to this movie, and uh, I for me, I think it, it have, how it kind of depicts psychology and kind of some of the terms that they use. That, that kind of becomes a, a thing that, you know, one, people use psycho as an insult, and they, they probably never really used it before this movie came out, right? That crazy person, weirdo, you know, not really meaning that you're having, like, psychotic episodes and, like, blacking out and committing violent crimes, but, like, oh, you're crazy, you know, psycho, whatever. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it, it's a, yeah, very interesting and does influence and, since people still watch it, like, oh, well, if it's on screen, it must be correct. And so there's probably a lot in this. Some of this may have considered to have changed. Uh, probably, I'm sure, a lot of it has. Everything medical has. But people are looking at this like, oh, this is still probably really accurate. And so that may have uh, long-lasting impacts on your profession, Charles, that this is the expectation that people have for, for terms and behaviors and all that. 
Well, one of the things that um, that I was thinking about when you said you wanted to uh, discuss this um, was uh, some of the some of the cultural ideas that we have about people with mental illness. Uh, I mean, there is the stereotype that people uh, who are suffering from mental illness are more dangerous uh, than the uh, baseline population. Uh, when in fact the opposite is true. You know, people. If you look at people who have been diagnosed with uh, mental illnesses, uh, they are in fact less likely uh, to commit violent crimes and more likely to be the victims of violent crimes uh, than uh, the general population is. Uh, also, the um, sort of our, our understanding and kind of general uh, sort of way of thinking about people with uh, multiple personalities or dissociative identity disorder. Uh, you mentioned the police procedurals and how many of them have done a psycho ripoff. Uh, one of the things that uh, sort of struck me as I was thinking about this was how many of these procedurals, whether we're talking about criminal minds or law and order or something like that, uh, how many times have we had an episode in which they may not be doing a shower scene or a you know stuffed mother in the chair scene or something like that, uh, but the killer turns out to be somebody with dissociative identity disorder, and uh, turns out we didn't know, yeah, and the, the, or at least also the main personality didn't know that it was one of the alternate personalities who was doing all the killing. So kind of this idea that if somebody's got dissociative identity disorder, there might be a, a, you know, a, a Norma Bates uh, hiding in there somewhere. Okay, uh, well, it looks like we are... Uh well, ways past the one hour mark, so I guess we should uh, start moving in the direction of the door. Uh, anybody have any uh, any final thoughts uh, about uh, psycho and uh, you know things psycho adjacent? The only thing I would say is that um, we we've spent a good, almost the entirety of this talking about kind of the very beginning and in that last little bit of the movie with the uh, psychiatrist, but um, the actual um, kind of uh, detective mystery of them trying to figure out what actually happened to her with um, Argonos, the um, crime investigator and all of that. Um, that, that. That all plays out very well. And you, you, it, does, it is very enjoyable to kind of watch um, Norman's uh, story kind of unravel because you have no reason to really doubt what he's saying initially about his mother. And so you presume that it is his mother. And then as he talked with other people and you learn from the local sheriff that his mother has died and, I'm sitting there thinking, like, oh, the sheriff must be wrong because I've seen the mother kill her, right? And so it, and so uh, once you uh, start to find that out, you know, he says, like, oh, well, her, her lover, her boyfriend left, and then this, this, and this. But um, I, I don't know. I found that very interesting as you, it kind of slowly unravels for Norman. Um, and even though I want his mother to be caught, I kind of don't want him to be caught. Like, but you're very sympathetic for him. Um, when he's played by Anthony Perkins, because he's this young, boyish, handsome, as opposed to, you know, the Norman from the book, who is this kind of very slovenly, overweight, middle-aged guy. And that you really see that also when they uh, they go into Norm, uh, when uh, Lila's kind of walking around Norman's house, which, P.S., you know, definitely last girl, because she's like, oh, what? I could go to the car, I could go here, I could go, no, I'm going to go into the giant creepy Victorian murder home. Um, and so she, uh, you know, she's looking around, she goes into Norman's room and it's like frozen in childhood, right? That he, he hasn't, yeah. like, hasn't progressed. And it's not just like, oh, that's a different room. That's the room he's sleeping in. The toys look like they're actively being played with. Yep. Super creepy and super Freudian. 
Oh, yeah. Um, uh, if I remember correctly, Anthony Perkins was also the one who uh, sort of included the detail that uh, in, in almost every scene that we see uh, Norman, uh, he's eating candy. That that was um, oh. that that was Perkins to evoke the childish uh, nature of Norman, and also he invents the stutter um, that that Norman um, has when he gets nervous, which is also I think partially um, a childhood guilty conscience kind of thing going on. Yeah. Um, one thing that uh, didn't really con- connect with a a lot of the stuff that we were talking about, but uh, sort of uh, occurred to me was, uh, Sarah, you said something about Psycho kind of rescuing the genre a little bit from its sort of place of derision in, uh, you know, the, the way that we see horror films and, you know, the, the giant monsters of the 1950s and stuff like that. And, um I, I'm not prepared to have a conversation about this. I haven't done any background. Just sort of a thing that is, you know, in my brain at the moment. Um, I'm wondering what it is about that era that we had such really bad horror films. Because if you go back before that, uh, in the the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, you had some seriously good horror. I mean, that that's the golden age of the Universal Monsters. And these were things that uh, weren't, you know, I mean, Dr- you know, Dracula and the Wolfman and uh, Bride of Frankenstein and stuff like that weren't derided as these C-grade wastes of time. These were things that everybody went and saw, and top-name people worked on them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of wondering, you know, what happened? What happened in that that those middle decades? And I wonder if it has anything to do with uh, the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code, yes, but also actual real like nuclear level external threats right like world war ii happens um for one thing so well, and you also get a lot of space stuff going on like a lot of it uh, a lot of it shifts from being like it becomes like space science fiction stuff and so you know we have uh, uh they uh sputnik goes out like 57 or so and so right. that's not too much farther, uh, too much before then. But this idea of like, oh, aliens and all this kind of stuff, like, oh, that that kind of peaks in a way that you never, you know, you're not going to have. You don't really have the idea of aliens or people from another planet until you have like, oh, we have planes and maybe we could go there. Like, it's it's yeah, just it's not going to be something that's going to occur to us as a, as you know. The external threat is different. It's the Soviets instead of the Germans, but the threat is external. And I think one of the things that makes Psycho so scary is that, I mean, to a degree, for Marion, the threat is external because it's Norman, but um, the threat is internal in terms of, like, this is a thing that can, this disorder is a thing that can happen to people. And maybe there are people with this threat around you and you don't know it. Like, they look, you know, quiet and handsome like Tony Perkins, but maybe they're going to stab you in the face. Yeah, and this is, like, what, just a few years before you have, like, the, uh, or, like, no, it's it's published maybe about a year or two before, but the movie comes out basically a year after, like, you have the murders in Kansas from, like, In Cold Blood and this idea that, like, there's a creeper, like, just around the corner from you as opposed to, yeah, it being something else. All right. Um, Well, I guess we'll uh, wrap it up then. 
so, uh, thank you all very much, much uh, listeners, for uh, sticking around with us. Uh, the Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. So, on behalf of Victoria Farmer and Sarah Kluster, I am Charles Hackney, thanking you for joining us for this discussion of Psycho. If you like the episode, send us an email. Uh, we're Book of Nature Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Leave a nice review at iTunes. And so with that, I leave you, leave you with these words of wisdom from Arbogast. If it doesn't gel, it isn't aspic. Bye, everyone. <laughs>